The year is 1998, and you know what they say, some motherfuckers are always trying to play podcasts at two times the speed. The movie, paid. And welcome to Unspooled. I am Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear, And we are trying to find the greatest movies of all time. And damn it, we are getting close. Because when we find a hundred of them, we're going to send them into outer space. Amy, we're talking about Blade today. Last week, we talked about Paddington 2. I want to get into some Paddington 2 talk. But I also want to just call out that Unspooled was in the news this week. Uh, I was talking a bit on my live Twitch show that I do with Rob Hubel, but Rob was not there, about how Tom Brady uh, gave us a cease and desist order because we made that Miyazaki Tom Brady mashup shirt, uh, and apparently he had trademarked his own name, so we could not sell a shirt that said, Miyazaki is the Tom Brady of the animation world. So I sat down with our friends at Public and we tried to figure out what we could do, and we came up with, Miyazaki is the Brady of the animation world, and that stuck. He can't sue us for that, but I am mad for all the other Tom Brady's out there. All the other Tom Brady's can't have anything good because this guy found this shirt and stopped it. And I started to search all around the internet for Tom Brady shirts. And it's amazing how many Tom Brady shirts are out there that don't use Tom Brady. They use Tom. They use Brady. They use like a flip of his name. So it's not Wait, stopping bomb anything. People, Tady? Bomb like, Trady? Yes. Essentially like weird ways of putting his name out there that is not technically the word Tom Brady together. And it's amazing because I guess there's a part of it where he's obviously like I don't want people to, uh, you know, be able to profit off of my name and image. But also Tom Brady's a common as fuck name. And I'd also say he's not stopping a goddamn thing because there's such an easy workaround for it. It's weird. to Like, I get your image. I get that. But a name is a really, it's not Cher. It's like Tom Brady. Imagine if my name was Pete Smith and I was like, nope, more Pete Smith, anything. Uh, what if he's I just, trying to turn himself into Cher? What if he's like, I'd rather go by Tom. I'd rather go by Brady. I'd rather own Tom or Brady. So I'm going to hone people that way by making it impossible to use both of my names at, at once. I am just amazed at how quickly he was able to find it. I'm also amazed that like us weekly picked it up. I'm also amazed that just Jared picked it up. I think the hate of Tom Brady is so big that people are like, fuck this guy. And, uh, and, and we're on our side. I get where he's coming from on a base level, but I was just really pleased uh, as we were all talking about this the other night that, uh, Porco Rosso was mentioned in Us Weekly because I do feel like Miyazaki is not getting that much play in the pages of Us Weekly. I mean, sometimes <laughs> they'll be like, oh, celebrities are just like us and they'll see Miyazaki buying an air conditioner at a Costco. But besides that, you don't get any good Miyazaki stories in uh, in Us Weekly anymore. 
I mean, I want to say I appreciate your point about people with common names as a person with a fairly common name. As a person who has a Google alert set up to my fairly common name, not really for me, but more just to see what the other Amy Nicholsons are up to, because I feel like we're all pretty similar. There's a lot of Amy Nicholsons who are journalists. There's a lot of Amy Nicholsons who like drive around the country in tiny houses. They're mostly in England. There's a lot of Amy Nicholsons doing wacky stuff. There's there's a horse jumper. Woo. There's also a flat earther, but we don't talk about her. (laughs) Um, You know what? Uh, I will say that I have a Paul Shear who uh, has an Instagram account and he just puts a dash after uh, the R because not many people have my name spelt the same way. And he's a van life uh, aficionado, builds some pretty kick ass vans. So I'm very happy (gasps) to be associated, but I also feel for him because he's like, I want to sell vans and people are typing in Paul Shear and looking at like, Hey, I almost got sued by Tom Brady. Paddington's all about uh, fuck the police, you know, and then and all of a sudden he's like, I just need to sell this van. This guy's screwing up my shit. So Wait, I feel for him. What if your Paul Shear met my Amy Nicholson, who like is into tiny living and van living and they like yeah. together became friends and made like the coolest van. <laughs> and maybe I mean, it's like the hundred places to visit uh, that we'd send to the aliens. <laughs> the hundred best locations in the world. I mean, I would be remiss though if I didn't talk about the greatest Amy Nicholson with my name. Her name yeah. is, of course, Amy Nicholson. She's a director who makes the kind of documentaries I would make if I wanted to be a director. Mm. She makes documentaries on poodle grooming competitions. You know that I am specifically into poodle grooming competitions. I do. She has made the landmark documentary on poodle grooming competitions, on strange beauty competitions. She did one on a on a beauty competition to be like Miss Muskrat. She does lots of weirdo stuff with animals, and we are always being confused for each other by people who personally know us. We've been invited to the film festivals on behalf of the other person. Oh her name, her picture was my picture on Rotten Tomatoes for a while. It has been very confusing. She sometimes gets my, my tweets. I sometimes get her tweets or congratulations. And uh, we're both blondes. And we met once at Sundance. And she's just delightful. I adore her. Oh, I love that. And uh, and I so I feel for all the Amy Nicholsons. I feel for all the Tom Brady's. Uh, and I love that we got around it in such a weird way. Um, I will say, before we get into that the reaction to Paddington was extremely interesting. At the end of last week's episode, everyone was so excited that we were doing Paddington, uh, people Paddington 2, and people were so excited. And now I've seen a little bit of the reaction, and it's almost like we wanted this dessert so much that now people are like, is it that good? Is it... (laughs) A good movie, oh, and then people are walking it back on. Well, it made me feel get good. What you want? <laughs> people are like, you know what? I well, it makes me feel good, and and but that's so that's why I say it's the best. But it's not really the best. And I this is the issue that I'm always getting into with movies. It's like you don't have to justify why you like it. I do hate that idea of guilty pleasures, as if like that level of enjoyment is not pure. Uh, like oh, it it's just fun. Isn't that what it's supposed to be? Like, it, you know, it, it, this is not math. This is art, right? It's, you're supposed to enjoy it. It's not supposed to be like a labor to get through. <laughs> I mean, I do think that the word best is just so tricky. Best, greatest. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I think of our show as just significant. What are the 100 most significant films? Because all of these words seem to kind of mean different things to me. Right. Like best implies a singularity, like it is the best in its class at this. Right. Great implies like it's just terrific. 
And significant implies like maybe there's a touch of labor, but it's important. It matters. It needs to be up there. I think it really all comes down to what you personally like. I think one of the fun parts of the show is having this conversation, right? And looking at things. And there are things that you love. There are things that I love. And sometimes they meet and sometimes they don't. And that's part of the fun of putting together a list that is a community list, right? Because perfection is hard to define always. And you're never going to find something that fits everyone, but you might find ones that a large majority agree to. So I almost feel like my personal best might be different than the personal best of the group. It might be different than the personal best of the list that we actually make. My list might be different, but it's a communal list that we are talking with everyone about. And I think that that's why we have uh, this opening for the listeners of the show to fight back. They really wanted the thing on the list and we got it back on the list. So I think there are these, you know, this is a community decision and it's going to be hard to please everybody. But I have to say, Paddington, I think pleases most people, but they just feel conflicted because it's too simple. It's too cute. It's too lovable. And we I are nervous about things. I have conflicts myself, man. I know, I, I know. It. I feel Well, I tell you. We are moving away from lovable. We are moving uh, into a world, well, lovable in a different way. We are moving away from soft and cute and nice. And we are taking a trip to a nameless city. Uh, I think it's L.A., uh, but it's not really distinctly said. Uh, to visit a day walker and some night walkers. Amy, it's time to unspool it. The year is 1998. Bill Clinton did not have sexual relations with that woman. Google is created by two Stanford PhD students. Good Friday agreements are reached between the UK, Republic of Ireland, and Northern Ireland. Microsoft becomes the biggest company in the world, valued at $261 billion. The hot films of the year. Saving Private Ryan. Goodwill Hunting. Armageddon. In today's film, Blade, Amy, who's in it, what's it about, and what was playing on the radio in 1998? Blade. It is directed by Stephen Norrington. It is written by David S. Goyer, who would, of course, go on to do things like the Dark Knight trilogy. And it stars Wesley Snipes as Blade, a daywalker vampire who was born into the world of the bloodsuckers when his mother was bitten by a vampire as she was pregnant with him. And he glowers on in full black leather, killing as many vampires as he can while quietly wrestling with his own pain at not feeling entirely human, not feeling entirely a vampire. I think Britney Spears wrote a song about that. Um, in this movie, he comes across what I would call a generational divide between the ancient vampires who have been vampires forever, represented by people like Udo Kier, and the new, hip, young, cool vampires like Stevendorf, who were bitten, only recently transformed, and think that vampiring should A, have a lot more raves, but B, completely dominate and subjugate all humankind. And it is up, of course, to Wesley Snipes to take down all of these vampires, as many as he can, keep them from creating a blood god, and do it, you know, kind of with a new friend at his side, and Bushy Wright as Dr. Karen Jensen, a hematologist that he comes across in a hospital who has already been bitten by a vampire. Take a listen. You better wake up. The world you live in is just a sugar-coated topic. There is another world beneath it. The real world. For thousands of years, 
They have existed among us. You keep your eyes open. They're everywhere. Chances are you've seen them yourself and didn't know it. A secret nation. Our livelihood depends on our ability to blend in. With a lust for power. We should be ruling the humans. These people are our food. They've got their claws into everything. Politics, finance, real estate. There's a war going on out there. He makes the weapons. I use them. Now, one will lead them to conquer mankind. Tonight, the age of man comes to an end. We're going to be gods. And one will try to stop him dead. There are worse things out tonight than vampires. Like what? Like me. Blade was released on August 21st, 1998, and it made a lot of money. It made so much money that one can kind of credit Blade with kickstarting the superhero movies that were to come. Now, what was on the radio that weekend? A song that I absolutely love and cannot think of a connection for. So maybe, maybe you can, Paul. Maybe you can. Uh, All right. It is. Okay. This, I love this song. It was like number one on the charts for months this summer. It is Brandy and Monica. The boy is mine. I love that. I would say that that is a song that Blade's mom might sing to Deacon Frost and to Blade. Oh, oh, that's a good idea. Because I would say that Deacon Frost has many romances and lovers. You know, he's also mm-hmm. dating the blonde vampire. He seems to make out with a lot of other vampires. Perhaps those vampire ladies being so hip, going to the clubs, perhaps they do groove to this and give him a pointed look. <laughs> you know, Amy, I was actually a little bit in my head about what Blade movie to do. I, I thought we should do Blade 2 because it's Guillermo del Toro and that might be a bigger, cooler film to do. But everyone convinced me we should do Blade 1 and I'm so happy that we did because Blade 1 is truly a redefining of the superhero film. It kind of is under the surface doing so many things that you see in the future of superhero movies, and not even superhero movies, action movies. I think you can see things from this movie in The Matrix, and then I also see the entire future of the Marvel Universe based in this film, which is a more grounded superhero. The action scenes are smaller. They're not like these big, colossal, uh, you know, the city isn't on fire, right? They're a little bit more contained, and that may be a budget issue, but it is this more personal story, It's got humor. It's got a great look. What Superman did in 1978 to kind of make Superman real, I think that Blade does in the 90s to take us into this next generation. And I think everyone is building upon it. But you look at the DNA of this movie, it's all there. Yeah, I mean, you weren't wrong to make an argument for two, you know, because two also has like things in its point. I mean, two, I would say, is a scarier movie. Like Blade One for being a vampire movie isn't really that scary. It's an no. action movie. There's some suspense, but I wouldn't even say there's that much suspense. Like all of that is is more present in two. Two does have that weirder story where like Blade is teaming up with vampires to kill other vampires. Mm-hmm. Uh Blade himself is like a different character in the second Blade. He's like more at peace with himself. He's a little bit looser. He's kind of more fun to be around. And of course, the special effects are much, much better by the second film. But that said, 
I agree with everything you said about like how this film is positioned in the superhero universe in a way that makes it really, really interesting to dissect. I mean, we should even just talk about like where Marvel is at the point that this film comes out. In 1996, Marvel is in bankruptcy. Marvel yeah. is not doing well in the in the financial scheme of things. And the and the industry at large is pretty terrified about making comic book movies. They're like, everybody is scared they're gonna make the make the next Howard the Duck. You know, Howard the Duck has just put this chill over the industry and people are nervous. Nobody is nobody thinks that this is a great idea. And 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 Wesley Snipes has been trying to get superhero movies off the ground. Well, Wesley he, Snipes wanted to be Black Panther. I mean, that was yeah. his original intent. Like and what a great role for him to be at this point, but then they bring him this lesser known character, which is really interesting because there is no relationship to it in the general sense. Like Blade isn't known, I think the same way that Robert Downey Jr. walks into Iron Man. Like we know Iron Man, but there's no real connect. Like now Iron Man is synonymous with the Marvel universe. But when Iron Man came out, that was a low tier superhero. Yeah, for sure, for sure, for sure. And you're right, like all the way back in 1992, Wesley Snipes was trying to get like a Black, a Black Panther movie made. And he said part of the struggle that they kept coming up against was that, you know, yes, they had Stanley's blessing. Yes, they had the things that they needed, except every time he would talk about it with people, he thought that because he was the guy who was famous for making movies with Spike Lee, he was making a movie about like the other Black Panthers. And, mm. then, and then, of course, an executive told him to his face, we do not want the Howard the Duck experience. But yeah, to your point about like who on earth is Blade in, in 1998, I mean, not a ton. Like this is a character who shot, what, in 1973, I think. I mean, he looks really cool in like his first issues. He's wearing yellow sunglasses and a green coat, purple pants, but he was never that big on his own. Even so, they've been trying to make a Blade movie for a minute. You know, like in 1992, right when Wesley Snipes was talking about doing a Black Panther movie, Marvel was sort of trying to develop like a uh, Blade movie with LL Cool J as the lead. Like they were going to make a yes. comedy version of Blade. Well, when they uh, pitched make it, it funny. Well, when they pitched this movie, you know, New Line had their thoughts about who could play Blade. And it was simply, all right, there's only three. Wesley Snipes, Denzel Washington, and Lawrence Fishburne. Like, that was who they thought could get the movie greenlit. And, you know, David Goyer was like, there's only one. It's Wesley Snipes. And Wesley Snipes truly is Blade. Like, I mean, there's something about him, and maybe it's because, and I don't even know if he knows karate. It looks like he does know karate. Like, oh, it looks wait, like he's he has doing three black belts. He's, okay. he's, been doing, he's been doing martial arts since he was 12. Okay, great. I didn't know because at this point, you never know. Like, now. You never know. When you have these movies, everyone's been working out for 10 years and they've trained in every martial art. But at this point, it could have been one of those movies where Wesley Snipes just kind of showed up and they had a stunt double. But it didn't look like that. And he is so much of a badass. Like the fight scenes here, like I said earlier, are very contained. You're able to see the actual fighting. Like he's fast, but not to a degree where you're using a lot of special effects to show off the fights. It's just really well choreographed moves. Um but I want to go back to what you were saying about Howard the Duck. I don't want to throw so much shade at Howard the Duck. Howard the Duck, sure, it's a Marvel uh, film, technically. I mean, that's a George Lucas weirdo thing. I mean, I think that if you want to look at why there's a lot of hesitation here, first of all, Batman and Robin comes out the year before this, right? So no one wants to touch a superhero movie after Batman and Robin. <laughs> I mean, Batman and Robin is a colossal flop and it's leather and it's nipples and all the issues of Batman and Robin that we all know. Um, so I would imagine at this point, we have kind of cleaned out 
this other version of superheroes, like the Michael Keaton Batman is long gone. And we are in this world also of vampire movies that kind of suck, right? Uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer obviously goes on to achieve cult status as a great TV show, but the movie is fine. I mean, I kind of like the movie. I like Paul Rubens in that movie. I, I think there's some really good stuff in the movie. I'm just saying it's if not a hit. If you do any slander on Interview with a Vampire, well, I, will, I'm gonna, I will glare. But I, I will that movie. I mean, well, I, I know, of course you do. But uh, but I'm not even going to get into that. I just want to just talk about the, the culture right now, because this is it. Buffy the Vampire Slayer 92. Then you got Innocent Blood, uh, also 92, as well as Bram Stoker's Dracula. Uh, then you have in 94, Interview with the Vampire. You have From Dusk Till Dawn in 96, which I personally love. Uh, the Night Flyer in 97. Vampire in Brooklyn, Eddie Murphy's. Wait, these Vampire movies are all good. <laughs> all right. Sort of. And, and, I've never and then, seen Night Flyer. And then you also have Vampires in 1998. Like, there's a lot of vampire movies out. And they are varying degrees. I'm not saying that these are all bad movies, but... This is a different take on it, right? I think that these movies have varying levels of success and maybe interest. You know, it's like this movie is a superhero movie where superhero movies are kind of dying, a vampire movie in a time where there's a lot of, let's just say, mediocre vampire films. Good stuff, bad stuff, but they're not like giant hits. I mean, was Interview with the Vampire a giant, giant hit? Yes. Yes, okay. All right. You say it. You say I mean, it, but I don't believe it. I mean, I'll say I'll say this. I've actually never seen Howard the Duck. I've always meant to see Howard the Duck. And someday I really want to do a series with you on films that are like synonymous with bad. Yes. And are they actually as bad as people say? Because Howard I'm the Duck, very Ishtar, curious about Howard the Duck. Heaven's Gate. All these movies. I've never seen any of them. No, uh, I've seen Howard the Duck. And Howard the Duck is I mean, not. A su- I wouldn't classify as a superhero movie. It's a Marvel movie because it's a Marvel character, but it's a even that's a reach. But this idea that Marvel comes in and they're like, "We're going to do this character that you don't even know," and I think the real selling point is not it's a Marvel movie, not it's a superhero movie. It's Wesley Snipes is going to kill vampires because he is a vampire, but he isn't a vampire, right? Like, there's something about it, like it's a, a real. There's something cool, like the image of him on that poster looks badass. And at this point, like Wesley Snipes is at the height of his kind of power, too. I mean, Wesley Snipes is, and I think you often forget how big he was because he was one of the biggest action stars, you know. He was huge. He was one of the biggest star stars. Yes. And he went away for a while. And even in Coming to America, too, God damn it, he is funny. Like he is really good. And I want to see him pop up in more stuff because I think there are a lot of stories about crazy Wesley Snipes, right? Uh, Living in a compound. I remember there was like a pyramid or there are a lot of insane Wesley Snipes stories. Maybe we go back and look at it and go, maybe we're too hard on Wesley Snipes. But I think he's a, a person that goes down in in flames a little bit. His reputation gets hindered. He goes to jail, you know, he uh, for tax evasion. But you yeah, know, from- I mean, he goes to jail. And when he's on trial, his own attorney says of him in his defense, quote, kooky, crazy and loony is not a crime. I Which, mean, and that, that's, yeah. that's his lawyer. That's his lawyer. That's his I mean, lawyer. <laughs> because he had all these things. But you took about Wesley Snipes just as where he's at. Major League. 
Passenger 57, New Jack City, right? Like these movies right. are oh, I mean, uh, in, Demolition in a, Man, in a broad, White Man Can't Jump. Range, Jungle yes. Fever, Tu Wong Fu. He was right before this, he was in U.S. Marshals, which we talked about when we did The Fugitive. Like he's there, you know, in, a, in, in the sequel yeah. to The Fugitive. Like he was really at this point in his career. Rising Sun. He's doing movies with, he's you know, Sean proving, Connery, yeah. De Niro. He's, he is in, he really he's, truly can is. Do Everything. He's proving yes. that he can do everything. And as a kid growing up, he is somebody that I I'm so excited to see the next movie because he also travels between doing like art films in a way, like like King of New York. Remember that Christopher Walken movie? Like doing something that's a little bit oh, that's like a a different thing than Passenger Fifty Seven. I mean, that's a uh, you know King of New York. I believe is an Abel Ferrar movie, right? Uh, and you know, just a, a darker movie. New Jack City obviously was huge. Like he just he is comedy, drama, action, all combined, and they all seem to work. They all seem to hit. They do. And so when this idea of doing a Blade movie comes across, like his whole team, his agent, his manager, all of his advisors, they were like, doing this movie is career suicide. They're like, do really? not do Blade. Oh, for sure. And he said, no, he was like, I'm not going to listen to you. He said, this is a movie that I want to see. He felt like his internal kind of dowsing rod said that if he thought this movie mattered, then he was going to do it. So he did it anyway. And then like, Which yeah, is funny after- because he didn't even know about Blade. Like you said, like he was attached to be Black Panther. And they're like, well, what about this character? And he saw the connection to like the black exploitation heroes of the 70s. And he's like, oh, I like this character. And basically, like, I think there's a quote where it's like, I saw him as this really cool character where I get to do martial arts and wear a leather suit. I'm in. Well, yeah. And and there's, I mean, by the way, there's an energy there. Yeah, you've been doing yeah. karate your whole life. Yeah, that's perfect. And like, and yeah, when this movie was a hit, he actually did fire his entire team. He was like, wow. if you guys don't see my vision, we're not going in the same direction. But I think it's also interesting that this is a moment where the idea of doing a superhero film is considered beneath you. You know, I just mm. saw the new Thor movie and and. For God's sakes, like Christian Bale is in that movie. You know, no, right. very few people can walk around now thinking they are beneath a Marvel film. People, no, I mean that's the feather. The more or less. I think it's the feather in the in the cap of Marvel that they can get all these Academy Award winners and nominees. I mean, there is a great uh, quote from Christian Bale where he's like, "I didn't even know I was a part of the Marvel universe." Like he didn't know. <laughs> Like he just read this script and he was like, oh, yeah, I like this character. But I like that he could be so checked out that he just hears like Thor. Like he's I'm doing this other large film. Like he didn't know until yeah. like he was in the machine of it. Like he which, looked at the script I love and just glossed that. over the word Thor. Although to be fair, like there. Do you know how movies used to exist with like really cool counter programming, which is a thing that I'm always railing about that we need yeah. more of? I'm very proud of the asylum. You know, they do those kind of knockoff films because like yes. this week, now that now that Thor Love and Thunder is coming out, they're releasing their own Thor knockoff called Thor God of Thunder. Amazing. And I'm just I'm very proud of them. Good work. Well, guys. they should be releasing uh, Tom Brady God of Thunder and they get the lawsuit. <laughs> uh, but the other ones, no problem. It's interesting, though, because I think we talk about this a lot. The alchemy of this movie is right. Yes, Wesley Snipes is great. And he's doing some things in this movie 
that are really interesting. The voice, right? It is a different voiced Wesley Snipes. It's growly. It's low. You know, and it's in that zone. And he's oh, also can I, doing Can we like, just play a clip of it right now? Sure. Just because I need to hear it? Okay. Okay. This is him yelling at Karen when she stopped him from shooting a cop. You better wake up. The world you live in is just a sugar-coated topping. There is another world beneath it. The real world. And if you want to survive it, you better learn to pull the trigger. I love it. I mean, and and he looks like a badass. And he does some funny things. Like, he fist pumps. Like, you know, like when you when you see a trucker and you want to, like, pull the horn. Like, like he does one of those after, like, killing a vampire. It's like... To see, like, a guy who looks as badass as him going, like, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But he makes it look cool. And I think the cool factor of Wesley Snipes elevates this movie, right? There are some things. And, you know, and I think uh, they get lucky because Jet Li is supposed to be Deacon Frost, but he goes off to do Lethal Weapon 4. God, I never want to talk about that movie. Oh, my God. It's so upsetting. Uh, but Jet Li's great in that movie. Well, I don't even know if he's great. But I'm so happy because then you get this great performance of Stephen Dorff as Deacon Frost. And what I think makes that really interesting is you look at the two of them and you're like, this is an interesting dynamic. You have this like kind of L.A. like dude and you put Stephen Dorff with all those old ass vampires, like you're saying, like they want to have raves, like he wants to be the party vampire. He wants to take over the world, but there's an energy, a youthful energy coming off of him. Yeah. All the other vampires look like bankers. You know, they're dressed like bankers. They're wearing suits. They're talking like bankers. They're talking about like contracts and mergers. And like, they're talking like old capitalists. And he's like, I just want to party, man. And there is something about that, like that, dichotomy between these characters that makes this movie so much more interesting. Like Steven Dorf doesn't look like a guy who's going to do karate. He's a vampire. Like he's good. They're going to have fight and stuff, but it's like Jet Li and him going at it to me is less interesting. Like I, I like the idea. I like the drama that Steven Dorf is bringing into that world of like what he's trying to do. It makes that story a lot more interesting to me. It's not just like two awesome people at karate getting to chance to give, you know, a karate fight to each other. You know, it's like, I think there's a lot more going on. It makes the movie more layered in a way. I mean, I would say first, yes, I'm always happy to give props to Steven Dorff. I, I, one of my favorite performances of him is just in that Sofia Coppola movie. What is it called? Like everywhere, somewhere, the one that's all shot at the Chateau Marmont. Oh he's yeah, just, yeah. He's so good in that. And I, I feel like there is more Steven Dorff that we are supposed to have in the universe. Uh, but in this movie, he is just so fun that honestly, when I watch it, I have the same issue that I do when I watch like Interview with the Vampire. I'm like, oh, being a vampire just looks so much more fun than not being a vampire. Mm-hmm. You know, like in this world, vampires are just getting to have like party orgies all the time. They get to have a sense of humor. They get to put rubber ducks in their in their fountains as they're wandering around drinking and dressing up and playing. I mean, come on. Dorff like walks around with like, his cuffs sticking out of his jackets, looking just like handsome and weirdly wet all the time. I don't mm-hmm. know why wet was hair- cool in the 90s. I can't really remember. It didn't make sense to me even at the time. Like arguing with Udo Kier, listening to headphones. Oh, he listens to the most repetitive music on his headphones all the time. And I find it weirdly just charming. You always take your time. It's a dead language. The ancient text can never be translated. 
You wouldn't even understand them. Danny Frost! I'm talking to you! Shh. Keep your voice down, Gitano. And, and meanwhile, what are the humans doing? Like, pretty much, you don't really get to see them besides Karen. And they're kind of just like in the background, skulking around and, and not being very fun. If like, if you're a human who knows about vampires, then you're stuck in the world of being Chris Christopherson, dedicating your life to the cause. And everyone else is just basically in the, I, I would say the words of this movie, sheeple. So who wouldn't want to be a vampire? I'd rather be hanging out with Steven Dorf than Blade. Well, I think they really embrace this idea of sexy cool, right? And that opening scene, and I think this is probably the most famous scene of Blade with Tracy Lords. You know, she's driving in this car, grabbing at this guy's junk, and it looks like this it already the movie starts so sexualized. You know, you're you're following this date that looks like it's built. And the movie starts off like at a 10 and you know and and things are off. Yeah. They're going to this club. And again, just so you know too, I like raves are something that starts really like in the late 80s. So this is, you know, it, it's kind of not peaking, but it's now it's even more popular. But this idea of like going to this underground club, I think it's still cool, right? And it feels like, oh, you'd go behind this door, you go in this meat locker. And and when you watch this character who she's leading through kind of see things out of the corner of his eye, things aren't right, but he's being led essentially by his dick to, you know, just be like, I'm not questioning anything. And whenever he does, she just kind of kisses him. And you get thrown into this room. And again, we don't know what this movie's about. We're not starting with Blade. We don't have any backstory. We're just going from a cool, sexy club scene where everyone's making out kissing. People are getting blowjobs. Like, it just, like, it's, we're thrown in yeah. to something that actually feels really adult, too. There's, like, heat and hostility. Like, this poor dingbat is getting, like, pushed around by his date. They're that blonde, who I just absolutely love in this movie, her name is Arlie Hover. Her name is credited as Mercury. I don't know if they even say her name, but you know what I'm talking about? The girl is just, like, in platinum white and, like, yes, white all the yeah, time. yeah, yeah, yeah. She's so funny. She's, you know, she comes from Spain. She's, like, a dancer who's in this movie. I, I love her, like, aggression towards him. I love just what a dork he is. I love how everybody is, like, heaving. I love how there's just meat hooks decorating the place everywhere. Oh, yeah. I mean, the music is so fun in this movie. You've got, like, people going to clubs and there's Japanese girls rapping on stage. I mean, yeah, you're right. Like, you enter, the movie itself has you enter a scene and you're like, oh, this scene's cool. I am in. I want to hang out in this scene that is this movie. Things are off. You don't know what it is. At first, like... The way it's shot, the way it kind of comes out is so great because this this clueless guy, you know, sees like a drop of blood on his face. And what's what the fuck is that? And then it gets another drop. And then all of a sudden the DJ's like, blood bath, and then blood is spraying all over it. <laughs> you feel like you are in the middle of a rave floor. He's seeing these things, the way it's directed in these like quick cuts, flash cuts. He's seeing so much crazy shit. And then he's like attacked on the dance floor. And you're like, oh shit, we don't know what's happening. And then boom, the coolest entrance of all, Blade shows up. And then it's like a kick-ass fight scene. So you go from this like intense sexual thing to 
wait, what's going on? Then you're like, oh shit, vampires. And then you're like, oh, fucking Blade. And then it's right. like this movie. I mean, it's, like, it's pure brainstem activity. It's yes. pure just like, oh, whoa, what? What? And even just the impossibilities that start to stack up right away, I find just visually fun. I mean, this is like the wettest, shiniest, stickiest blood I've ever seen in my Mm -hmm. life. It's coating every inch. And yet somehow Blade enters bone dry, you know, just sort of standing there. Well, you miss his little leather leather umbrella that he carries. (laughs) I think he prefers a parasol. Oh, By wait, the way, I do are only for sun, right? So you do need yeah. an umbrella if it's a liquid like blood. Okay, uh, yeah. I get that but confused. Yeah. I will say this, just to give some props to Deacon Frost. You know, Deacon's like, well, I love partying. I love eating people. Oh, shit. I got it. Guys, we got to get enough blood to fill up a room. Uh, you know, we'll shoot it out through like the uh, the extinct for the fire extinguishers. People are like, oh, well, you know, Deacon, we can't do that. Like the amount of work for that 10, 15 second bloodletting of the, the ceiling. Like how many bodies was that? I know we see a body coming out, but that's a lot of planning. There's a lot of planning to get in there. And I, and then, so I look at Deacon Frost from a party promoter point of view and I go, this guy cares. This guy wants to do the work. Like he cares about the culture and that's why I do believe in him. So when Udo cares, like you don't get it. He's like, no, I actually, I do get it. I get it so much, you know? And, and, uh, yeah, I just feel like Deacon Frost is willing to buy like the nine dozen rubber duckies. Deacon Frost is willing to figure out what sunscreen he can wear for at least 10 minutes outside. That'll give him 10 minutes of sunshine. It's like, hey, can I get a metal bed that works on hydraulics? Like, where we don't even really see the top. I mean, he, Deacon is doing it up. Deacon also, all white room, good sense of style. Like, he's not living in the dark. This guy likes, you know, a white room. I mean, but there is something like, I I guess you put not a no shade on Jet Li, an amazing martial artist, huge actor, but that storyline is not interesting with Jet Li. That no. storyline is exclusively interesting with Steven Dorff being this dude who you're like, oh yeah, that would be who I think Steven Dorff is. Like, you know, like he carries himself like a guy's like, yeah, man, we're gonna have fucking blood from the ceiling, get rubber ducks, got this cool ass bed. <laughs> you know, it's like there's just an energy to him that's really, I think, it makes the whole movie. Yeah, I think Jet Li's Deacon Frost would be probably slightly more in tone with like the comic books, I guess, you know, like Mm -hmm. that Deacon Frost is a lot more serious. He was actually a deacon and older and not a party promoter. He had like a big gray beard. Uh, So Jet Li, I think would have more of that like gravitas, I guess. But there's something about the nineties that I do feel like, yes, I will flag my own nostalgia here. We're just exuberant, dumb fun. Like this scene, like so much of this movie is, is marvelous. And that is a dwarf decision and that is not a Jet Li decision. And yes. where I think that Jet Li, where I think it's really interesting that he was cast in this at all, or like that they reached out to him first for it, is because I feel like Blade is like this tree flowering from what we were talking about a couple of weeks ago in our Super Cup episode. How like in 1996, there was suddenly just this like intense burst of interest in Hong Kong cinema here in America where Jackie Chan's first movies were coming out, where they were getting re-released, where he was suddenly on MTV, where Quentin Tarantino was like, he's the coolest thing, where Rumble in the Bronx is a hit. You know, I think that Blade sees that energy and really is like, yes, yes, we love it. This feels fresh. This feels new. Let's take Jet Li. Let's put him in this movie. Let's do Wire Fu in this film. You know, a little bit of that. Like, 
I, I feel like this movie could go further with the wire foo. I don't think it's like the greatest wire foo that I've ever seen, but I appreciate that it's kind of taking comic books, taking like this American art form and expanding it to like the action and fighting styles beyond Hollywood's borders. Yes. And I will say the one wire foo moment that I really do love in here is actually at the end of that rave scene where like Wesley Snipes is, you know, slashing around and then he leaps to the wall and he somehow is doing the splits against the wall, just like, oh, ta-da, yeah. splits against the wall. Amazing. Amazing. Like, I want even more of that energy, to be honest, in this movie. I, I totally agree. And I think why this movie redefines superhero movies and sets the tone maybe even for action films or heightened action films is because I don't think anyone thinks of this as a superhero movie. I think that people think about this as a vampire movie and this is a vampire hunter movie, right? And so it doesn't have to carry any... Yes, he's a superhero, but this movie breaks all the format of it. Like, we talked about, oh, I don't want to see another origin story. We've seen so many Spider-Man origin stories. What what can we get? What can we glean from this that's different? And boy, oh boy, this movie barely does an origin story. Like, they drib and drab it out, but it just gets right into the action. You don't need to know more. All you need to know is Wesley Snipes looks like that, and he kicks ass. And like... And you'll figure out the rest and you're fine. You don't have a million questions like, well, I need to see his journey. How did he get the sword? Where does he find the bullets? You know what? You, it's like we are thrown into it. And I think even from that point of view, it's refreshing because I don't think that they had to answer the notes of how did he become a blank? Yeah, you know, I think simply, part of the yeah. freedom came from the fact that nobody really knew who Blade was. So they're like, all right, there's not a lot of pressure from the studio to like get Blade exactly right. I mean, this is a moment where the executives that people are dealing with haven't read most of the comics that that they're even considering making into the movie. I mean, David Goyer would tell a story about how before Blade, he was trying to get a Doctor Strange movie made in the 90s and he couldn't get it to happen. He said like Columbia bought the idea to make a, a Doctor Strange movie. They didn't know anything about Doctor Strange. He wrote a Doctor Strange script and when he turned it in, the executive said, I wish there wasn't any magic in it. And he was oh, like, wow. what, what, what? what? But yeah, because of that, I think they did get this freedom. You know, they one of the statistics I think is interesting is when they showed this movie to audiences early on, only 10% of audiences even knew that Blade was from a comic book, which right. honestly, that's great because I feel like right now, maybe it's because I've been so immersed in the world of like Comic-Con and blogs for over 15 years now. And it feels like, you know, all of the Easter eggs that are going to be in the movie before you even see the movie and everything is endlessly dissected. And will the Maguchkin ring be used to power the Blaglada sword? And like, will it? I don't know. We'll find out Thursday. Like, I don't, I find that whole conversation so tedious that they're, I think, again, nostalgia flag. I find that statistic so refreshing. I totally agree. I think that, you know, this movie is of its time, but oddly timeless, too. The same way I feel about The Matrix. Like, yes, they're in leather outfits and stuff like that. Is that lame? Well, maybe in somebody else's hands it could be. This movie, I think, at one point was lame. It was 140 minutes. Oh, my and, God. And it tested so terribly that they went in there and they started, like, chopping it up. And... um that, I think, creates a tone and a pacing to it that actually helps the film. I think that that, you know, maybe they found a lot of this movie in the edit. I don't know what that cut was, but you can tell that they wanted to start off big. 
And maybe they did open it up with the mom being bitten and seeing all that. I don't know. You know, it's like, but it does feel like it benefited from negative test screenings. Yeah, for sure. I mean, one of the things that they cut when they did that first test screening was the original ending. Yeah. Like the original ending. If you had the thought watching Blade, uh, seeing Stephen Dorff get like injected with all of the blue vials and of course getting yeah. the greatest, most bizarre one-liner of all time. Some motherfuckers are always trying to ice skate up hill. By the way, ice skate? I just really do want to understand what the fuck. What do you mean? I mean, that's what's on his mind, an analogy about ice skating? Like, I, I is he from a snowy climate? That that would be the first kind of metaphor you reach to? Well, I mean... Wait, I'm confused at what you're trying to get at here. I'm saying that's just the most random explanation for some people push it too hard that I've ever heard. Is that some a saying that people use otherwise? Do uh, is is this a common analogy? I've but never here's heard the this thing: I'm a big believer in when you are a cool as shit action star, you can say anything in any way, and it sounds. Like, yeah, fuck yeah. But if I said that, you'd be like, wait, what are you saying? Like, like Jason Statham can deliver a line about like a turkey sub and you'd be like, fuck, man, that was a cutting line. So I think Sometimes it's like. Sometimes your eraser tastes like gum. No? Well, no? you're not, a, you know, look, if The Rock said it, maybe. Okay. You know, it's like some motherfuckers are always chewing on glue thinking it's gum you know if you said that with enough intention you'd be like yeah and then it's it's one of those when you're in the car ride home you're like yeah say it well now i don't feel like i'm i'm not super confident in that one i how about uh how about um some motherfuckers think they're eating crepes but it's just pancakes (laughs) like you know (laughs) (laughs) like you know You know, I think I know what you mean by that. I yeah, it's like, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, I think I'm fancy, but you're just eating pancakes, motherfucker. There he is. <laughs> but I guess what I'm saying is if in that scene you saw Deacon Frost swell up and become this like bulging, horrific tumor and you thought, oh, my God, that kind of looks like the ending of Akira. Remember, he becomes yeah. like an identical monster. I mean, very much Akira, I feel like, is a huge visual touchstone for this because in the original ending that they even changed, it was more Akira than that. Like Deacon becomes kind of like this blood tornado and everybody goes inside the blood tornado and they get lost in this blood tornado. It is so psychedelic and it is exactly like Akira. And then actually in that original ending as a tiny, tiny Easter egg, instead of the movie ending on him going to like Moscow for some reason, um, the movie ends with just like him and Karen on the roof and they look across the roof and they see the director himself, uh, Stephen Norrington, yeah. In a wordless cameo as Morbius, we could have had an early Morbius. Oh, if only we had had more decades of Morbius. And, and then you just hear Wesley Snipes say this. Damn. And, you know, look, uh, it would have been great to have Morbius in the sequel. They couldn't get Morbius because of Spider-Man. And this is kind of the problem that Marvel is experiencing. You mentioned in the beginning, Marvel's in this place where they are essentially bankrupt and they started to sell off properties to different studios and they wanted to create this like interconnected world where different studios would have different properties. And what that has essentially caused is all these problems, like until they could get back all these things. So it can all be under one roof, which is the Disney roof. And, you know, and it's created all these issues with what we've seen in Spider-Man and the Avengers and deals and, and all this bullshit. It's the reason why we have Morbius movies now and Venom movies now that aren't really truly connected to 
into the MCU. Uh, but it all stems from this moment here because if they knew that they should have kept everything. I mean, they made the right choice in the moment, which is we need to figure out how to live and survive. So we're dealing out all these pieces and then they've gone back and like gotten all of them. It's a very Western idea. Yeah, I mean, Avi Arad, who was the head of Marvel at this time, like he really believed that he knew that Marvel could explode if they had all of the pieces together, if they could just get everything together. I mean, even before Spider-Man came out, you know, which I think Spider-Man is really the one that changes their fortunes Mm -hmm. massively, like Spider-Man and X-Men combination. He was saying, this is a quote from him. Over the next 20 years, there will be nowhere to hide. I won't be around, but before I pass the baton, there's going to be a tremendous amount of product and sequels and television shows and animation. This is really the Marvel age. And he winds up leaving Marvel in 2006 to go, you know, more independent. He does like the Bratz movie. Now he's also still in the universe. Like he produces all the Spider-Man movies. He did Spider-Verse. He did Venom. He did the Morbius movie. But he really had a sense that they could make this happen. And I feel like he did push it down the path before, you know, Feige was also there. And he also tried to, I think, set a tone for what a Marvel hero was. Like his quote was when this movie came out is like our characters are definitely underdogs and antiheroes. They get hurt. They don't they don't have an advantage. You have to put them in situations where you are not afraid to give them heart, tears and soul. He said that to him, the right kind of Marvel movie would feel more like an opera. Well, you know, now we have like the ring cycle just done as Avengers movies. Well, I also mentioned that, you know, part of the success of Marvel and the indoctrination of Marvel fans happened with these animated uh, series that were going on at the time. You know, like, Blade makes his appearance in the Spider-Man cartoon that you were watching on, or at least I was watching when I was coming home from school, like on Fox, you know, this idea. Like, they, they were doing some great animation keeping these characters alive. And I think that that's also part of, like, this viewpoint of extending it out. Let's get it out there to as many people as we can. You know, not that they know that comic books are dying, because they don't think they're dying in, at this point. But they're indoctrinating more and more people to start to love these characters. I want to ask you something, though. Do you think there's a reading of Blade that's political? Because when I watch it this time, I can't help but notice how many of the antagonists in this movie are policemen. Like, starting right from the beginning, we have policemen shooting at a black man in a hospital because they just assume that he's the bad guy. And you have Wesley Snipes just yelling this. Freeze! Motherfucker, are you out of your damn mind? But that continues. Like, there's another, there's the other cop who shows up in Karen's apartment. There's, like, them stealing a cop car, chasing a cop car, doing that whole drive and, like, attacking a cop. There's policemen and kind of goons all the way through who are, like, seen as representing this class of oppressors. Well, I mean, look, this movie comes out just a couple years after the L.A. riots, the Rodney King beating. You know, something that we're dealing with even still to this day. But I think in that moment, there's a joke there. It's like... You're going to shoot at me. I'll kill. Like, I can kill. Like, you see how powerful I am? It's like, it's like, what are you doing? Like, what are you doing? Right? Like, you know, and I think there is something there that is the stance of a hero. Like, you can shoot at me all you want. Not only will you not hurt me, but I can easily destroy you with, you know, just to snap my finger. Like, I think there is like a, there is something powerful there. I think that that is... You know, and and look, you don't need the Rodney King beating or the L.A. riots to say that there has been police brutality, especially here in Los Angeles, for decades, right? So it's just sort of, to me, I feel like it's underlying and it's saying, like, here's somebody who's standing up to the cops. I think it's a very, uh, and again, 
I'm a white dude. What do I know? But I'm just saying, I think it's a cool, empowering moment where he is, you know, he's he can't be affected by the cops. And that's cool, you know, to me. And I think that that actually is a very powerful moment. And 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 you can't deny that. And that's a that's a cheering in the theater moment in certain theaters where you're like, fuck yeah. Like I see that. That's a hero I want. It's like it's a hero that is also for the people in a different way than we're normally seeing heroes, in my opinion. talking about origins and stuff, I kind of want to talk a little bit more about the origin of Wesley Snipes, because I think that we have been, we are, as you were saying, like at the end of kind of an era of a period where like Wesley, you know, to maybe the risk that his first agents were worried about did kind of derail his career in a bit. Cause I think after the blade movies, he got pigeonholed as an action star. He really did start starring in a lot of like direct to TV, direct to video action movies. People stopped recognizing him as like the actual dramatic actor that he was that like yeah. his career was on track to be, which I do think is a loss. And I do sort of wonder if that was a, a short changing of the track that he was on. I mean, this is a guy who, you know, he went to the New York School of Performing Arts, you know, the, the fame school. He actually went to the fame school in the era when fame was being made, except right before they started to go to a school to make fame, his mom made them move to Florida. So oh, he weird. had to go living in Florida, watch the fame movie, see his classmates in the fame movie and be like, I can't believe I'm not in that movie. He was so mad about it. But he was a musical theater guy. You know, he had this like broad range of experience. One of his first roles was for Martin Scorsese, although I will say with the caveat, that it was Martin Scorsese directing the Michael Jackson video for Bad. Have you heard about this story? I love this story. So like Martin Scorsese was auditioning roles for like the lead kind of gang member, tough guy right. who challenges Michael Jackson to act out in the video Bad to play this part. What are you doing, huh? You ain't down with us no more. You ain't down. You ain't bad. You ain't bad. You ain't bad. You ain't nothing. You ain't nothing. And Wesley got the role by, in his audition, being like, oh my God, it's Martin Scorsese, and doing a good enough impression of Robert De Niro that uh, that Martin Scorsese was like, okay, you get the job. And in interviews, like, uh, Wesley has said, you know, I actually stole the role from somebody really, really cool. Yeah, for that role in Bad. Prince, Prince actually, Michael had told Prince that he had the role, and, and then he met me. Is that true? It's, this is a true story. Okay, because you just lied about your birthday, and so I don't... No, 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 this is a true story. Right. And Prince actually was, was considered the, the lead character mm-hmm. in the bad video. Right. And uh, Michael met me and then kicked Prince to the curb. Right. Well, here's, here's, my, here's something Imagine I'm curious that. about. Uh, <laughs> Michael Jackson, when he met you, because you were playing a gang member, he thought that you were in a gang. Yes, is that he right? Did. He really thought you were in a gang. Unfortunately, he did, sir. Yeah. Yes. He really thought I was in the game. He didn't know that I was a, a trained thespian. Yeah. <laughs> Were you staying in the character box. the whole time? Is that why? That's Michael... a scary gang. Yeah. The thespians. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Jesus, guys, the thespians are coming. <laughs> Look out. They, they got, you don't want to mess got, with them. They got edited out of the Warriors. You <laughs> yeah, know yeah, yeah, yeah. Thespians, come out and do your breathing exercise. They, they were in the back trying to figure out their motivation. <laughs> yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? I mean, the stories from the making of this video are sort of 
fascinating. Basically, like Michael Jackson was walking around Harlem and the people of Harlem were not cool with Michael Jackson at this point. Not overall, like people were heckling him the whole time. Like, what are you doing here? Get out of here. And Michael would reach for um, Wesley Snipes' hand to hold his hand for like comfort as he was walking through the streets of Harlem. Yeah. So even if he did think he was a gang member, he at least thought he was a nice gang member. But that's, that's so yeah. interesting. You know, it's so like I do remember like my first like memory of Wesley Snipes uh, was from Wildcats. Remember that movie? It was the uh, football movie with Goldie Hawn. Oh, I never saw that. Oh, it's really fun. Uh, or at least my memory of it is really fun. That and Major League were my first like I always thought of him as like, you know, he had like I mean, he was in sports movies and stuff. But yeah. it was it's so funny because we, we keep on talking about this. He's so versatile in what he was doing. Like he was able to kind of fit the mold of a lot of different performers. No, you're right. I'm struggling to think of an actor who had that much versatility to go from like athlete to drama. Because I would even argue that Denzel Washington and I'm just talking about like black actors of that stature, right? At that moment, like Denzel Washington is much more on the track of like a Tom Cruise, where you're always going to get a, for lack of a better term, like a Denzel Washington performance. Like he is like, and I think we talked about this. They're both great actors, him, Tom Cruise, but you're getting a level there where I think that, I think that there are things where Leslie Snipes transforms a little bit. I think that's true. I mean, if we're looking at the actors of his class, I'm like, well, Cuba Gooding Jr. can do drama and comedy and he could play an athlete, but I don't think he did as much of any of them. Yeah. I think in each of those three categories, Wesley had a film that beat him. Right. As much as I do love him in Jerry Maguire. But honestly, I really love Regina King in Jerry Maguire better. I feel like she's the one who should have gotten the Oscar nomination. <laughs> I will I will beat that drum forever. All right, I, I'm, I'm with you, I'm with you. Okay, but I do have to say, have you ever really, really looked into his IRS case? Because I got curious no. in preparing for this ep. I was like, okay, he didn't well, pay his taxes and what well, let happened. Me, can and I, I pitch, didn't really know the whole... Yeah. Can I pitch to you what I remember? All right, this okay. is what I remember. And it could be totally wrong. I remember that he didn't pay a large amount of taxes. And at one point, I remember him having plans or building some sort of pyramid in some sort of distant area in the United States where he had kind of walled off a compound. Uh, <laughs> like That's what I remember. Is that totally Whoa. not true? I don't remember the pyramid, but I really want to know about it. I mean, I know that Nicolas Cage built a very expensive pyramid mausoleum so that he could put some of his money there in New Orleans. But I mean, I, I, I do know this about his tax case, which is that he got kind of connected to this this guy who said that he should start asking the government for refunds based on his money that he had already made. Uh, that and these refunds for like, you know, from like the Blade era based on this kind of really bizarre and arcane reading of the tax code, which they sent these letters to the IRS being like, please pay us millions of dollars back. We paid you too much money. And the IRS called it frivolous. And so he started to send these really increasingly hostile letters back and forth with the IRS. And like in one of the letters, he told them that he had his own definition of frivolous, that frivolous meant correct. So mm-hmm. every time they said he was being frivolous, they said he was being right. And if they argued with his definition of frivolous, then he said, quote, free speech guarantees the right to, to, to prescribe the exact meaning of words. So the IRS was like, you are annoying the hell out of us. He also believed and began to put like colons and strange punctuation in his name in his letters to the IRS because he believed that 
if his name wasn't exactly what his name was on his birth certificate, then he was changing his legal status and was no longer mm. subject to the government. Okay. Uh, but yes. So anyway, um, when he went to trial, uh, yes, his lawyer said you kooky, crazy, and loony is not a crime. His lawyer also decided to present no witnesses. Wesley didn't testify on his own behalf. In a way, he almost won his case because most of the charges were struck down. He only got charged on the end of the day with three misdemeanors, and they expected he'd only get a few like months of community service or something mm-hmm. like that. But the judge did throw the book at him heavier than anybody expected him to. He got three years in jail, which I wonder is maybe because they were just freaked out at him for other reasons, like you're saying. Well, yeah, I think it, it was a lot they threw of, the book yeah. at him hard. It's like he won, but he also then got the book thrown at him really hard for smaller things. I, I think it's, you know, look, I think you can't argue there is always a a play of, of racism and in, in, in some of this stuff too. And, and the fact that, you know, if this involvement on, on some level uh, scared people, uh, you know, it, it's amazing to f- see someone do that much time for tax evasion, you know, and I don't, and I think you've seen other stories like this, but never with that kind of a. Uh, yeah. I mean, when know. I think of the people who get, th- you know, punished for things like tax evasion, insider training, it's like famous non-white or non. Right. It's famous non-white males. You know, it's Martha Stewart. It's it's yes. Wesley Snipes. And meanwhile, all these bankers just be walking around like we didn't do anything. Everything's fine. Everybody's my friend. What what's wrong? Yeah, uh, I mean, it's it's tricky. Yeah, it's like it's a very. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is a whole other... I would love to actually get into it. I mean, I'm sure there are podcasts out there that people have maybe broken this down. Uh, but I think what we lost was a bunch of great Wesley Snipes roles. But yeah. also, there's also a lot of rumors. And again, I'm talking a little bit out of turn. As a Wesley Snipes fan, and at a time that the internet was not as uh, useful and information was coming in all different sources, that Wesley Snipes was doing more and more um, kooky things on set like the stories from blade are wild not this blade but as it continued like you know everyone's got a crazy wesley snipes story you know uh, as blade goes on and on that's fair and it is also true that like in this movie you know nabushi wright who plays uh karen who i think does a pretty good job with karen i it, think she think does so? fine here's the thing right well, i don't think you needed that character and and it it, it I'm mixed on that character, and I have nothing to do with her performance. I, I, I just feel like it. Wait, it, it's this other story that I feel like they're throwing in a little bit of romance that you really don't need. And I guess she's got the blood issues and stuff like that. Like, it just, ah, it just didn't feel like it had as a lot of weight as much as I wanted it to. Well, or I not think one, what yeah. you're picking up on is like Wesley Snipes' own issue with having that character there. Like, he mm-hmm. didn't really want to have a female character there. Because, like, he really had the struggle with it that she talked about, like, pretty openly afterwards. She was like, Wesley Snipes felt like if there was a major character in the cast who was a woman, it made it really weird for Blade. Because he felt like Blade should not have a love interest. Blade should not be a flirt. You know, 
Blade has other things on his mind. Blade doesn't feel like he's human. Blade would deny himself human pleasures like sex. So the idea of having like a human female love interest in this movie, he was really against. Um, But he also felt like if there's this nice woman around Blade and he's not flirting with her, it makes him seem even worse and kind of even more like a cold villain. He said it made him feel like the Terminator to have this woman around him that he couldn't flirt with as in his character. So Mm. I think it did. I, I think there's actually... A point kind of there in that like there is something weird about his performance he's so mean to her like pretty much constantly and you know you can tell like i appreciate that at the end they don't become a couple and he's like invent me a better serum i'm out of here but also it's a dynamic that's kind of strange throughout the movie you're like i don't know exactly where this relationship is going to go because they don't make it clear they're buddies either from the big you know and, and Nabusha Wright, you know, who, by the way, she's like a, tra- she grew up as like a trained dancer. She studied in the Martha Graham Company, which is like very cool. Uh, and she went to LaGuardia High School at the same time as Jennifer Aniston. Mm. She said that she and Wesley would, you know, go back and forth in their, in during making the movie about like how dependent her character should be. Like he was sort of like, if you're in this character, then you should just be like the damsel in distress. I'll fix it. I'll take care of you. And she was like, no. I don't want to play that kind of character. I want to play like a woman who's not a wimp. Like this, my my Karen knows her neighborhood. She is not scared of things. She's ready to fight back. And they could not agree on this at all. And so what they wound up doing is they would do some of their scenes two ways. One time she'd play it more like victim-like, more weak. And the mm-hmm. other time she'd play it more independent. And then in the cutting room, the director decided he's preferred her being brave. So they cut this take of it. Vampires like you aren't a species. You just... Infected, a virus, a sexually transmitted disease. I'll tell you what we are, sister. We're the top of the fucking food chain. But that is kind of like a strange compromise. Like, how do you play a character feeling like, am I playing this person or that person? Yeah, and you know, it's interesting. It, It... That's the role that doesn't feel incredibly thought out. I think what you get from that is also you lose a connection to Chris Christopherson because, you know, he's the ally that Blade has and, you know, clearly shoots himself in the head at the end of this film, but then is back uh, for the sequel. Can Uh, we play that scene? That scene is so funny. I mean, this it feels like this movie at every turn tries to figure out what's the toughest, most mean way of getting something across. So like in this scene, Chris Christopherson is worried he might be becoming a vampire. He asks Blade to shoot him. Blade won't shoot him. Mm -hmm. This music goes on and they're quiet looking at each other for about a full minute. And then you have this scene where Chris Christopherson just finally takes the gun. Now walk away, you stupid son of a bitch. Walk the fuck away. I mean, I'm with you. I like their dynamic a lot. I think Chris Christopherson's really fun in this. And I can understand why they like went through hell and earth to bring him back for the sequel. I mean, and you want him back. And you, and I think that he is such a fun character. I think what you start to lose in the sequels and, you know, it's like whether it's Patton Oswalt talking about it or, you know, whether it's even um, David Goyer, uh, Ryan Reynolds, like I think Wesley Snipes becomes more and more like Blade like he becomes very methody in these movies and kind of freaking people out and everyone is just kind of I think that in a weird way this movie starts to 
launch him into a role where he is this giant superhero and he wants to do his own thing. And, and I think as each movie kind of progresses, it loses a little bit more of the juice of what makes Blade a singularly interesting character. Like the second movie, you have great performances like Ron Perlman's great, Donnie Yen is great, uh, Norman Reedus. Norman Reedus. You know, and, and, and I think then, you know, it's, this is very much like great Wesley Snipes role. And I think everything else starts to get a little bit more diluted after this, sure. in a way. But I will say, though, Wesley Snipes is maybe my third or fourth favorite character, maybe fifth favorite character in this movie, though. Like, I don't really I think. Yeah. I think maybe lower because when I think about the people that I really love in this movie, the characters I like to watch, I love like the the blonde vampire lady who's dressed in all white. Stephen Dorff, I think, is marvelous. Chris Christopherson is great. Um, I re- you know who I really really love is like the the second heavy, the kind of like guy who keeps changing his hairdo throughout the movie. Like he has braids, yes. he has pigtails. Donald Lug- Logue, he plays Quinn. Yeah, yeah. No, I he's love really fun. That character, he's so funny. I love it when he's like trying to explain to to Deacon. How scary Blade is. Deke, I don't think you understand. I mean, this dude is what? fucking bad. Like, he's, he's like, you have 20 guys around him. And I was there, man. He's got shitty throws at you. Like the sword. Yeah, he had the sword. Exactly. Shit, yeah, he's he's got, like, the throw in the air. Catch it underneath. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. shut the, the fucking... fuck up. And I, and I especially love it at the end when they think they're going to become like, like gods. And he's just, he's just, he's like, he's the Lillard man. He's such a bro. Tonight, the aged man comes to an end. No more compromises. We're going to be gods. Of course we are. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to be naughty. I'm going to be a naughty vampire god. <laughs> that character pops to me. And I think there's something in the, the inwardness of Blade that I have a hard time registering. It's like I can see intellectually that he's struggling with like how human he feels and like his kind of grappling with his emotions. But I kind of don't feel it because like what rings most to me in the movie is just that Blade is a guy who has a, you know, a funny quip or reaction to stuff. That Blade is tough and Blade is strong and he projects such toughness that I think I have to work triple time to see the depth in that character. Yes, because it's a hard character to connect to because he's not like, there's no humanity. I mean, that's part of the character is that he's, there, there's no humanity. Uh, but... I think his there is uh, a charm there. I don't know. I, I disagree. Like I like him. I think Donald Logue is great comic relief. I think Stephen Dorff uh, plays a role without like being seen. Like he's not chewing scenery. Like you could play that role really broadly. Um, and I think he plays it actually. You know, you know, pretty down the middle in a great way. Like I think you know. So it's like I think everyone is like he's so arch blade that you need to offset him a little bit. Chris Christopherson is probably the most grounded, but it is to me, I think a great choice from performance wise, because of course he would be like that. Like he's, but that's why you're saying in, in number two, he's a little less of this blade. He's more likable. He's this, he's looser. And that's tricky too. Cause it's like, you want him to be this conflicted. He's a monster. He truly is a monster. He's part human and heart man, part vampire. Like he's a recovering addict. And I think you're, and you're seeing that fight on the surface, you know, like he's somebody like right on the cusp. Uh, and I think that that's what you're watching there. And there's no joy to that. 
It's true. I mean, they, they have so many metaphors for what vampirism means in this movie. Like, it's yeah. very clearly drugs. And then at another point, it's like very clearly disease, sexy sex. I mean, the metaphors are kind of all over the place, but I feel like this movie is really all over the place. Like, this movie is, it's like you opened up a little kid's cigar box and you saw all of their favorite things in it. They're like, wire foo and leather and lots of guns. I, I do feel like there's too much shooting in this movie, honestly. I feel like I don't need to see a vampire movie that's like endless gunfire. It feels very Schwarzenegger to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the fighting fighting is much more fun. Yeah. To me, where I pity the movie and I can see the movie that it could have been in just a few more years is just how bad the CG is. Not its fault. It's trying. We didn't have the technology. But the CG, I mean, maybe I can try to paint bad CG onto my like nostalgia flag and wave it around and find it really adorable. Like that bit where like Steven Dorff gets cut in half and like the CGI blood holds him back together that, and like that and like that the the CGI blood drop, like the end of this movie is incredibly lackluster. Like it is just is. It's like you're in this like weird tunnel. I don't even really know what's happening. I mean, I do, but I'm like who gives a shit? Like it, it, it kind of is a very anticlimactic end. It's cool. It's a sword fight, but I think this movie is most remembered for everything that happens before that. Honestly, like it's, it's, yeah. it, you know, it's. Um, I mean, the and, best thing about the end is like them really leaning into the fact that vampires are just sexy sex monsters who will have sex with anything. And like his mom is like his mom, his I mom know. is hitting on him. You're like. Wow, vampires are just like no codes, man. Well, and then you know what I what I also kind of like, and we're talking about this idea that this movie was potentially put together really in the editing room is the you know they end the movie and like I said it's it doesn't end incredibly on a high note. It's like okay, and they're like fuck, what do we do? And they basically go back to the beginning, you know, mm-hmm. woman or you know man on the street, some sort of date, what's going on? And it's like. Russia. And, you know, it cuts the blade in the snow. He's like, I'm here. It's like, who gives a shit? Like, what What are you teasing in Russia? Like, there's like the movie hasn't built to that. There's no allusion to Russia. Like, now he's in Russia? Cool. Yeah. Like, I mean, how like, many more cities do we have to go through? Like, it's just sort of, it just, it, it, to me, it feels like we needed something. How can we, like, quickly shoot something that looks cool? It, it is like a Marvel uh, post-credit scene that has, like, uh, that no one that is clearly just like, uh, what do you think of this? Like, you know, it's like it just it it's a nothing. It's a nothing scene. It's a the, the end of this movie really falls apart. You know, I think that Stephen Norrington is an interesting director, obviously. Uh, yeah. And he has an interesting shadow career, Stephen Norrington. You know, like he yeah. says no to doing Blade 2. And so then Del Toro does it and elevates. He was attached to The Crow. He was attached to the Clash of the Titans reboot. He was attached to Ghost Rider. He was attached to a reboot of Akira. He was even attached to doing like uh, Shang-Chi all the way back in 2001. Mm. He's been attached to all of these things that seem like important pivotal movies. And I you know, haven't read a lot of interviews with him. I don't know why he didn't make them. He just wound up making two more, I think, after this, The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen and something else. Which is more a, of like a another classic kind of like mistake. Karate you know? sort of thing. I mean, League yeah, of Extraordinary strange. Gentlemen is a, is a mess. Uh, you know, and again, he had all the, all the right parts, you know, for it. Like, you know, he really yeah. did. I mean, and I'm curious what the Mahershala Ali blade is going to be. I like as I like we're that recording casting. this, they just announced that they're pushing back the filming. So, like, I don't know what that means. Well, it's interesting because it's like, unfortunately, with that movie, 
Well, I'm, I'm not unfortunately. I think that Marvel's starting to create worlds where you don't have to connect it all to superheroes, right? I think Miss Marvel's really working well because it's like a, a teen, you know, teen comedy. I mean, the superhero, but it's, it's different, you know. Um, and I hope that Blade is able to retain its horror, you know, its horror backstory that you can kind of just have fun with a character outside of the Marvel Universe. I don't need to see him teaming up with Tony Stark, you know. Uh, Mahershala definitely looks good on paper. Like when you hear like, he's, he's the next blade. I think everyone's like, yep. Like, and, uh, he's got the right energy, attitude, everything. Uh, so I'm curious. I, I mean, look, I, 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 I'm a big Marvel fan. You know that. So I'm, I'm but this is an iconic role now. Like the issue that I think Robert Downey Jr. and, um, Wesley Snipes have had in, was that no one cared about these characters. No one even cared about Thor, ultimately, right? Um, and when you have a character in mind, you're like, well, why isn't the character more like that? And yeah, it's I think easy it's almost impossible for anybody to live up to another Superman. But it's right. maybe easier to fill in the boots of a Blade? I mean, yeah, I, I maybe. I don't know. Maybe. Because obviously Spider-Man, there's different takes on Spider-Man. Spider-Man has worked, you know, depending on the movie. But... Uh, but I think it's going to be, well, again, no one has any memory of anything. I did a, I did a show this week in LA where we were talking about the movie Chasing Amy and no one in the audience, A, knew what that movie was about or that really? movie even existed. Yeah. And I wow. was like, wow, it was a very young audience. And I'm like, oh, wow. I guess like the nineties is like not a time that people go back to and, and probably rightly so at certain points. So and they're doing uh, it with our fashion. Can't they do it with our films? And yeah, I guess there's too many things to watch. Uh, all right. Well, you said it, Amy, in the beginning that this movie was not uh, received well. I mean, it, it was, was a mixed not. review. Yeah, yeah, it was kind of seen as, oh, this Nobody was looking to it to be significant, and they decided mm-hmm. it wasn't significant. Um, like the New York Daily News, I pulled a clip from that interview just because that was funny. They said, has the comic book movie reached the end of the line? The glumly familiar been there, done that aspect of Blade certainly suggests so. Which, alas, we reviewers, we cannot see the future. Um, uh, but the review that I really pulled is from a critic named Paul Tatera, who was one of the first critics I read all the time because he was so funny. He wrote for CNN. Um I'm going to pull out just to show you how funny I really think he is. This is him just describing the slaughterhouse scene. He says, We see hundreds of mannequin types in overpriced uptown clothes, boogieing and looking immensely pleased with their fabulous bone structure. Tracy's meal quickly starts catching on that maybe he doesn't belong there, and not just because he doesn't like sit-ups and Sade albums. Ugh, I love his writing. But um, this is what he wrote about the movie in his pan. What in the world is Wesley Snipes doing? This guy is an honest-to-God actor, but in recent months we've seen the results of his increasing tendency towards serving time as little more than an action director's plaything. My question is, if audiences are trying so desperately to escape whatever's got them all worked up in their daily lives, how is this any better? Let's face it, making everybody a vampire and pretending that there's a story behind it is a very thin pretext to butchering folks on camera. Plain and simple, it may not be the official attention, but it is the fully expected result. You've never seen so much blood and whoosh-boom-zap brutality in your life. And again, I mean that as a criticism. He could be one of the finest actors around if people just go see his meaningful work. Don't force this guy to go jumping off any more buildings. It is hard enough enjoying movies as it is. Well, I mean, yeah, I, I don't agree with that. I mean, but again, I think that the... It's interesting, right? Because 
Before we did this movie, I thought for sure Blade 2 is the better movie. And I think that Blade 2 is probably the better constructed film. This might be the better constructed performance that also breaks a lot of barriers. And so from a film standpoint, I don't know if Blade is great. I think that Blade lays the groundwork for things that become great. You know, whether it is the leather, whether it is the wire fighting, whether it is the grounded story, taking character that no one knows, like those are all things that are cool to see the DNA of this movie and them. But I don't know if this is a great movie. And, right. and, it, and it two things can be true. Yeah. It feels significant, right. not great, to bring it back to our earlier conversation. It feels significant to me without me loving every inch of it, but me loving yeah. to watch this movie. I like and, to watch this movie. Yeah, and I, and I think that I did too. I enjoyed the movie. It's a fun movie. And, you know, I always talk about like this idea of like, well, did you do it first or did you do it better? And I think this movie did neither. Well, no, I think it did do it first. But there have been other films that have done it better. And I think you could draw that line to The Matrix. And I think you could draw that line uh, very much to Sam Raimi, Sam Raimi Spider-Man, Spider-Man movies. And, uh, and, and even to the John Favreau Iron Man. Like, I think that, that, that those movies I'd all consider higher caliber films. But even Iron Man 1 has some, you know, some rusty parts. But, uh, but Blade, yeah, Blade is an interesting one. Because Blade yeah. is, I think, a... a a flawed film that has so many great things going for it. Exactly. It is. Yeah, sure. I'll, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not the first black vampire film by any means. I mean, like you mm. and I already like love Ganja and Hess. We talked about this oh, on the yeah. show. We've talked about doing Blackula off and on, which I think has some interesting parts in it. But uh, I mean, there's an argument for doing Blackula, but also the movie is so sexist. It ha- it, I'm really not in the mood for it right now. Um but yes, first, in terms of pushing Marvel in the direction that it exists for better and worse. And I mean, what else can you say than that? And, uh, you know, uh, so onward with our hero series, I think it'd be really interesting to discuss another kind of a hero and a hero that, you know, we just talked about this idea, like, can you feel for this hero? Can you be connected to this hero? Do they lack emotion? Well, the next hero that we're going to talk about definitely fulfills all those things about being hard to connect to uh, and being uh, incredibly obscured. I mean, to a point uh, that is almost comical, and that is Peter Weller in RoboCop. A hero, <laughs> villain. So I mean, You know what, Amy? Here's something crazy. I don't think I've ever seen RoboCop. <gasps> You of all people have not I know. seen RoboCop. I remember it being too violent for me when I was a kid. Like I had a, sen- I had a, you know, huh? conservative sensibility, and I was like, I don't want to see it. It's gonna be too gross. Because I remember apparently when he gets killed, uh, you know, Peter Weller, the cop, it's very gruesome, and I was like, I don't think I could take it. And I think in in time, I've watched pieces of it, but it's one of those weird movies where I probably have watched it. I do remember a lot of chunks of it. I remember the mech robots and things. But anyway, take a listen to the trailer. We get the best of both worlds. The fastest reflexes modern technology has to offer onboard computer-assisted memory and a lifetime of on-the-street law enforcement programming. It is my great pleasure to present to you RoboCop. This guy is really good. He's not a guy, he's a machine. Old Detroit has a cancer. Cancer is crime. 
Let the woman go. You are under arrest. You, you better back up, pal. Your move, creep. You can find RoboCop wherever you find your streaming movies. We all know that. You can also use Hoopla to find uh, streaming movies and eBooks and comics and TV shows uh, on your phone, tablet, computer, whatever you want. It's all for free. Uh, check out your local public libraries. I want to remind everybody to make sure to follow us if you are listening to us on Apple Podcasts. It makes a very big difference. And tell your friends about the show. Like, subscribe, do all those things. Visit our cheap public store where you can find the altered Tom Brady shirt. Uh, you know, and also uh, I'm going to be going on uh, tour. Are we allowed to do one of Blade ice skating? That's a shirt. Blade <laughs> on ice skates? Is a shirt. <laughs> I like that. I like that a lot. Let's see if we can get Christina on board over at T Public about designing one of those. Uh, I'm going to be going on tour in August. You can check us out at hdtgm.com. Amy, anything you want to plug? Oh, you know, just a little one. I think I talked, gosh, maybe a year ago about the movie podcast. You know how movie did a whole first series oh, yeah. where they talked about like movies that were number one only in this one specific country and then what it said about that country's cultural zeitgeist. Mm-hmm. Their new season is coming out and it's all about specific movie theaters that turned movies into cult hits. Like the movie theater that created El Topo, the movie theater that created Harold and Maude. And so, um, yeah, I am a little bit of a voice in it, but I just think it's such a brilliant show. So listen to the new season of the movie podcast. Oh, I love it. All right. Well, I want to give a shout out to our producers, Josh Richmond, Devin Bryant, Molly Reynolds, our engineer, Ryan Connor. I want to give a shout out to our intern, Jacob Morton, uh, and also all of you for listening to the show. We will see you next week for RoboCop. And uh, if you want to go back and listen to Ganja and Hess, you can sign up for Stitcher Premium, where you can listen to all of our shows ad free uh, and watch Ganja and Hess. Fun, cool movie. Uh, all right, we will see you next week for RoboCop. Bye, Amy. Bye. Bye.